Before we get started, I wanted to let you know that this episode features graphic descriptions of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. Tom Juneau, in this story that you and Paul Levine are here to tell us, there are so many places that we could start that I'm, I'm struggling a little bit to figure out where exactly to do it. But I think starting with a man named Irv Pankey on October 25th, 1978, might make the most sense because what was happening exactly on that date? So Irv Pankey was a football player for Joe Paterno and the Penn State Nittany Lions. My name is Irv Pankey. I was a football player at Penn State from 1976 to 1980. He was one of a bunch of Penn State players that went to the Center County Courthouse on October 25th, 1978 in support of a player named Todd Hodney. Todd had been accused of raping a Penn State student named Betsy Saylor. On this day, she was bringing charges against him. I went to show support for my teammate. But when the facts started coming out, she's very straightforward in, in her testimony. She didn't waver a bit. She was unflinching in her testimony. Players started looking at each other like, holy shit, maybe she's telling the truth. I think that they were used to dismissing accusations like Betsy's, but Betsy was such a powerful witness on her own behalf that they started shaking their heads. I mean, this is straight out forceful rape. When I really sat down and started thinking about all that I had heard, and I just said, you know, I need to go. I think that the one that was affected, in fact, I know the one that was affected the most, was Irv Pankey, because he was affected enough by her testimony that he eventually took action. I feel obligated to tell you that the story of Betsy Saylor and Irv Pankey is unlike any story that I've ever heard before. It is a story that was shrouded in darkness for so long, tied inextricably to a serial criminal named Todd Hodney, a Penn State football player and teammate of Irv Pankey who directly benefited from institutional failures. Failures by the criminal justice system and by Penn State University. Failures that, in this case are wholly unrelated to the infamy of Jerry Sandusky. But as unambiguously awful as those failures and those crimes are, the story of Betsy and Irv is a story that will also make you feel the exact opposite, I assure you. And you'll have to listen to understand why. I'm Pablo Torre. It's Friday, September 30th. This is ESPN Daily. So before we get into this story any further, guys, I do want to establish that 
Today's show is based on a story titled Untold, which is the single longest story in the history of ESPN.com. And it's exhaustively reported by Tom Juneau and Paula Levine, two award-winning writers who I am very grateful to have on the show with me. So thank you for joining us, both of you. It's great to be on, Pablo. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So your story focuses on the crimes committed over years by a former Penn State football player named Todd Hodney. And this is a story that had gone essentially untold for decades. And the story within that story is that of Betsy Saylor and Irv Pankey, which is very different. But the one thing that ties all of this together is Penn State football, and specifically Penn State football in the 70s. So could you explain that era and just the state of that hugely famous program at that time? So it is 1978, to be specific. Penn State football is, is as big as it could be at the time. I mean, it, Paterno is, has been there about uh, 12 years. He is being elevated along with the team by the national media. Everybody's talking about his grand experiment of combining these quality academics and athletics. And, and he's profiled everywhere. And he's, he's becoming the icon. And it is the thing in State College. It is the reason that State College exists. The football players are on campus. They are the gods, the icons. Like, State College is on the map because of Joe Paterno and Penn State football. Two wide receivers to the right. Fourth and two at the pit four. Here goes Goodman. This is the season where Penn State is playing for the national championship. End of the game, the final score, Penn State 19, Iowa State nothing. They're going undefeated, and they are, they are at the top of the, of the rankings and of the polls from the very beginning. And Paterno is making speeches about how good the team is and that they're playing for the national championship. By the end of the season, 60 Minutes does a whole profile on, on Joe Paterno and about if he doesn't win the national championship, well, then maybe he should because he's such a good man. <laughs> Joe Paterno and his idea that football can be fun on Saturdays and football can be part of an education gets his chance to prove that football can be fun even on New Year's Day. If he's not number one, maybe he should be. And so we have peak Joe Paterno, we have peak Penn State, this all-time program winning national plaudits for being the model of how to do this well, Tom. And so Todd Hodney, who is the player at the center of the hearing that we started off with, the man you profiled deeply for this story, how do you begin to explain him? Well, I think it's really difficult to explain a guy like Todd let me let me just go back to the beginning of like how I got involved in this story. I think that's the be- yeah. really the best way to. I think that's the best way to do it. So I played football against Todd against Todd Hodney on Long Island in the late seventies. Todd Hodney played for St. Dominic's. They had a um, a parade All American quarterback named Tony Capizzoli, and they had a linebacker who was the, you know, the Dick Butkus, the T.J. Watt of Long Island, a linebacker whose very name 
caused, you know, opponents to sort of reconsider. He was 6'2", he was 240, and he was known far and wide for being a hitter and for being ruthless. But this guy that you knew personally, that you had heard and felt the the legend, the notoriety of, it, it doesn't sound like that notoriety stopped at the end of the football field. It didn't. Todd was an intimidator on the football field, and he was an intimidator off the football field. Todd was known as a guy who used to show up at parties and starts fights with broken beer bottles. Todd was always sort of a guy on the edge. He was definitely a guy that you didn't want to mess with. People were scared of Todd Hodney. I talked to one of his coaches. He had said that Todd's off-the-field exploits were well-known among the St. Dominic's coaching staff. But when Penn State came around, it was not something that was talked about. And when we talked to one of the Penn State coaches about Todd Hodney, he had said, well, he was a good kid. He was known as a good kid. If he wasn't a good kid, we never would have brought him to Penn State. It was sort of like, if he went to Penn State, then by definition, he was a good kid because he was part of the big Paterno experiment. The guy who got the Penn State stamp of approval, had he ever actually gotten involved with criminal behavior? Did he have a record? Todd Hodney was robbing houses on Long Island, doing breaking and enterings when he was a sophomore in high school. The cops investigated. They basically did a, an intervention in which he was told to return the stolen goods. He was into stealing stereos, but he was not ever charged with it. And how long did it take for this kind of stuff to show up at Penn State? Not long at all, as it turns out. I talked to Todd's roommate. Todd was getting away with stuff really from the very beginning. But that was all, I think, pretty private until June of 1978, when a couple of friends from Long Island came down and Todd convinced them to go and commit a robbery. They went to a, a record store that Todd had become accustomed to stealing stuff from. He used to steal records by putting them under his jacket. And he went to the store on a Sunday morning with his friends. They broke in. They committed a robbery. And they got caught. Some people who were nearby the record store reported that the cops came. The two friends were caught, but Todd escaped by running right through the cops. And as one of the friends said afterwards, Todd escaped because by this time he was a criminal. Mm. He knew how to escape because he was a criminal. Did they ever apprehend Todd for, for this, given that his other accomplices were arrested? They did. 
because Todd might have been a criminal, but he wasn't a criminal mastermind. So he he came back to visit his friends in jail. <laughs> Some of the cops were like, hey, you look like that guy that ran away. Man. And so they he was arrested. And he was, along with the other two, um, charged with crime. In Todd's case, he was charged with a felony. And he was suspended by Joe Paterno for committing that felony or for being charged with that felony. But Paterno did not give up on Todd Hodney. Paterno, in fact, got Todd Hodney a roommate by the name of Fred Ragucci, who was known for being straight-laced. And he put Todd and Fred together in 279 Hamilton Hall so that Todd would learn from Fred and learn how to walk the straight path. So Todd Hodney gets suspended. That keeps him out of that entire 78 football season. But you're saying he also gets this second chance from Joe Paterno. And during that 78 season, by the way, the football team without Todd Hodney is great. They march to the national championship game. They're winning all of these games. And one of the fans filling the stands on those Saturdays is the woman we discussed at the very top of the show, Betsy Saylor. So tell me more about Betsy, Paula. Where was she in the fall of 1978? So Betsy Saylor was starting her senior year at Penn State. And Betsy was a little bit of an atypical student. She was from the the Pittsburgh area. She had a fiancé who was seven years older than she was, who lived a couple hours away. She was one of the few women majoring in business administration at the time. And she was a very typical Penn State student in the fact that at the time, she was a huge fan of the football team. And she was a big fan of of Joe Paterno. I loved Penn State football. I loved going to the games, the pageantry, the camaraderie. I mean, everything about it. She was proud of, of the university, and she just was living life. And when she arrived for campus that fall, she was in need of, of a new roommate. And so, you know, it's 1978. She did what everyone else did then. She put an ad in the school paper, The Daily Collegian. It said very simply, female roommate needed to share a quiet apartment near golf course, Rent is $87.50 plus phone, non-smokers only. Call Betsy and her phone number. And she gets several people calling, and including two men. And there was one who, you know, was kind of annoying and asking if she absolutely didn't want a male roommate. She kind of, you know, dis- disregarded that one. And then there was another guy who called who said he was calling for his girlfriend and that his girlfriend had registered late and, and needed a place to live. And, and he wanted to know, you know, where, where her place was. And Betsy told that guy that, that she was actually going out, but that he could see the place later. And so that night, this is September now in 1978, Paula, when Betsy returns to her basement apartment after going out, what happened? So she returns home. I went downstairs and uh, put my groceries down and started doing all the silly stuff that you do when you're all by yourself. 
I was singing loudly and dancing with the refrigerator door and being very much myself. But then the shock of remembering that I had an eight o'clock quiz. And I thought, oh, it's midnight. So I went back into my bedroom and the light didn't work. She switches on the light, but it doesn't come on. It's dark. The very next thing, I had a hand over my mouth and a knife in my neck and a person saying to me, if you make a sound, I will kill you. He put his hands around my arms and directed me towards another bedroom, threw me down on the bed face first. He is tying my hands behind my back. He also tied a scarf, blindfolded me. He'd asked her where her razor was. And this speaks to, to, to Betsy's quick thinking, because the last thing she wants is for him to have this razor. She realizes that when men think of, of shaving, they think of the mirror and the sink. That was another point that I got scared and I didn't want him to have a razor I didn't want him to cut me and I had to think quickly and I thought I'm going to take a calculated risk I have my razor that I just unpacked not so long ago and my razor is in the shower I'm going to lie I'm going to tell him that I just moved in and I have not yet unpacked everything and didn't unpack my razor. Knowing full well that he could move the shower curtain and see it right there and maybe even retaliate against me. And I was afraid, but I thought I needed to safeguard myself as much as possible. So I did lie, and he never did find the razor. So he is spending a lot of time in her medicine cabinet, rummaging around, touching a lot of things, never finding her razor because it's not there. And in her mind, she's thinking, oh, oh, good, he's, he's leaving prints. She goes into information gathering mode. She makes a mental note that she is going to remember the details of everything that happens. She sees his thumb under the blindfold and she can tell that he's white. She makes note of his build. She makes note of the stitching on his jeans. And he was wearing these distinctive shoes, these blue suede Clydes which were, were popular at the time, but you know, really stood out because they, they were, they were kind of unique. She's still thinking that, okay, he's here to rob me. He's here to, to take my stuff. And she says, you, know, you, you can take my jewelry, 
And he says to her, I'm not going to do that. I remember asking him at one point, what are you going to do? And he simply stated, very matter-of-factly, I'm going to rape you. And when he said that, it shattered her. It sliced through her. It just, the reality of what was going to happen just dawned on her. And she also knew right at that point where she had heard that voice before. It was the voice of the boyfriend who had called about the apartment. I made a calculated decision on more than one occasion that I was not going to try to escape. I was too afraid that he was going to kill me. I think the entire incident was over two hours. The rape itself was um, penetration and oral sex. He then stands up, gets dressed, and she hears him open the back door. But he comes back in the room and asks her to open her legs. And she refuses. And at this point, he's rummaging around her room And Betsy asks him what he's doing, and he says, waiting for a ride. And a few minutes later, he just leaves. As soon as that I determined that he wasn't there, I worked, you know, as quickly as I possibly could to untie the hands that were behind me and ran upstairs, called the police, and they were there in very short order. After the break, a police investigation begins. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11th ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with code DAILY. That's code DAILY. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Paula, we're picking back up now, and it's the fall of 78, and Betsy Saylor has survived being raped by Todd Hodney, this Penn State football player with this extensive past that Tom has chronicled for us. And so Betsy Saylor reports this to the police. And when you were reporting out that particular sequence of horrific events, what did you discover? One of the key documents that we got during this whole line of reporting pointed to what became, I guess, one of the most sort of revelatory things about Todd Hodney, which was his sort of path of carnage in in state college. 
And it was uh, a document where the detective was questioning about other reported assaults. And we were able to finally get a version of this document that had the names on them. And so I reached out to these women. I was able to talk to three of the other women, all have stories in varying details of being attacked by a very large man, having a knife or some type of weapon, saying certain things to them. Unfortunately, there was never any arrest made, but they were mentioned in the investigation into Betsy's case. And there are so many similarities and investigators after the fact have said, we were thinking that these were all all related. And you see this pattern continue in a series of rapes that happens months later. One of the women that you spoke to, I know she wanted to remain anonymous. And so you refer to her as Susan. In your reporting, it seems like the perpetrator in Susan's case did not just go off and disappear into the night. What did he do next? After that crime, he began calling Susan, basically to harass her, to threaten her, but also to say that he might come back, that he enjoyed it so much. And she got so angry at these calls. She's very much like, you know, I was determined to continue with my life after my attack. These phone calls really angered her. And she wound up telling her dad about them. And her dad, as it so happened, was an employee of the phone company. And he ordered a trace on these calls. And the calls were traced back to 279 Hamilton Hall, which is Todd Hodney's room. And they went and checked the records. And it so happened that they had fingerprints of Todd Hodney from the Record Ranch robbery back in June. Suddenly they had a name and they checked it. They didn't have fingerprints from the crime against Susan, but they had fingerprints from the crime against Betsy. They had the fingerprints from the stuff that he touched when he was milling around the bathroom looking for a razor. They had fingerprints from a light bulb that he had unscrewed so that when Betsy came back into the room and hit the switch, it would remain dark. They had these fingerprints, they matched it to Todd Hodney, and they issued a warrant for his arrest on October 14th, 1978. The second thing that they did right after they did that was contact Joe Paterno to tell him that one of his players was in trouble. And so now we're back to where we started at the top of the show, right? The traced call, the fingerprints, they help land Todd Hodney in court for this pretrial hearing. It is October 25th, 1978. We are four games into Penn State's undefeated football season and in the courtroom. Showing support just by being there are a number of friends, players from the team that Todd has recruited. Irv Pankey being one of them. But we had noted earlier that as Irv was sitting there listening to this hearing, he had been moved by Betsy Saylor's testimony. Did Irv expect to feel that way? 
I think when a lot of those players showed up, they clearly didn't know much about the accusations against Todd Hodney, and they thought that this was just some girl who felt jilted or, you know, just they, they just couldn't see how someone like Todd, who could get any woman he wanted, would have to rape anyone. The team had come out in support of Todd with Joe Paterno's permission. And Irv was one of those guys. Irv was friendly with Todd. He used to party with Todd. On Tuesday nights, they used to go out to a place in in State College and then go back to uh, an off-campus apartment and all watch the Three Stooges together. Later on, when we talked to Irv, he said of Todd, he was one of my boys. He was my boy. We worked out together. We played together. Then they went to the courthouse. And then Betsy Saylor started detailing what happened to her on the night of September 13th, 1978. She was unflinching in her testimony. And I think that the one that was affected, in fact, I know the one that was affected the most, was Irv Pankey. And was there a particular detail that affected him the most? Was there something that clinched it for Irv and the other players there? It came down to Todd Hodney's shoes. Of all of the, the details that she described that matched Todd Hodney, the build, the knife, just his mannerisms, one thing she took note of was the fact that he was wearing these blue suede shoes. And when she described that detail, the football players who were Hodney's teammates were like, holy shit, like, like Todd wears those shoes. And that was the detail that really cinched it for Irv Pankey as well. She was bold enough to stand and get up there and speak on her behalf at a time where on any college campus, women weren't reporting rapes. Women were vilified. Well, look what she was wearing or, you know, how she was acting. She shouldn't have been at the party drinking, blah, 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 blah. When Betsy testified, I thought that took a hell of a lot of courage and self-fortitude to be able to do that. And so what did Irv do given this knowledge? After the trial, at some point, we're not entirely sure when, we haven't been able to establish an exact date, but Betsy gets moved into a, a freshman dorm at Penn State. And she's a senior, and so that's a little awkward, and she's by herself, and, and you know, this traumatic thing has happened to her. And so one night, she's alone in, in her dorm room, and there's a knock at her door. There was a man that completely, seemingly, filled the entire door frame. Like, there was not a lot of space other than him. I wasn't sure she was going to slam the door in my face, you know, because I was one of those guys. He put out his hand. Hello, my name is Irv Pankey, and I just wanted to let you know that I was in the courtroom 
And I listened to what you had to say, and I believe every word that you said. You will never have to be afraid or be alone again. I will be by your side. From that point on, if, we, if I was going out, come on, you want to go? I tried to include her. You know, something bad already happened to her that kind of set her apart. I just didn't want her to feel that someone didn't care. And that was my main goal, was to try to let her know, you know, this ain't a football thing. It was a Todd thing and that she was okay with us. I had never met this man. He had no reason to offer himself and his protection or his belief in me. I was amazed. One of the things that drove Irv from the very beginning was his own sense of isolation on the Penn State campus. My freshman year at Penn State, there were 12 African-American players on the team. He knew how rape accusations fared at places like Penn State and at places like State College, how they fared in you know, the court of public and student opinion. She would have been a pariah. She got a Penn State football player in trouble. And he knew how isolated people who actually stand up and make accusations of football players, how isolated they become. And he had said that he did not want her to feel alone. He did not want her to be a pariah. I had to go get her, and I don't know why. I can't tell you to this day. I just knew she needed someone to say she'd be okay. This gesture by Irv is so important to her because it just, it, like as she described, she says it sort, of, it sort of strengthened her spine. It made her stand up. It gave her this power to move forward. It, it you know, sort of made it possible for her to continue there. He gave me a bit of freedom that I wouldn't have had otherwise. He would have the occasional uh, get-together at his house, and I was invited. Everybody knew who I was. I don't know if Irv had a talking to them or whatever, but there was an understanding there. He sort of takes her into his fold, and, you know, he's... He has a group of, of friends, you know, mostly the other black players on the team. He invites her to parties, has her, you know, hang with his buddies. And, and this is all entirely platonic because they each have other, you know, romantic partners. So truly a gesture of, of wanting to be her friend and wanting to let her know that he's got her back and that he's going to stand by her as... You know, she goes through what will become a pretty tumultuous end of her college career. I felt a bit of respect. And the respect came from, I believe, a woman 
that was taking on something quite large. And the majority of people that I was dealing with were black football players that had certainly been up against battling big things in their lives. I do think it's worth reiterating here that the Penn State football team, the the gods on campus, right? They're undefeated in the season that we're talking about in 1978. They are undefeated. They're making this run to the national title game in January. Irv and his teammates, they ultimately lose by a touchdown to Alabama. And so when does the actual trial here, the trial of Todd Hodney, when does that start, Paula? Well, the actual trial doesn't start until the spring. And Pablo, it's probably not by just sheer coincidence that it was over spring break for Penn State, a time when the student newspaper was not publishing, uh, students were not on campus, and uh, that's when they decide to bring this football player to trial. And, And likely the cause for not very much coverage of the trial in retrospect. Betsy Saylor testifies, and uh, Todd Hodney's defense team tries to, you know, attack her credibility, establish that maybe she's got the wrong person, come up with an alibi, but the jury does not see it that way. They uh, come back on March 3rd, 1979, and as the jurors are polled, each one of them, uh, the same word is echoed 12 times guilty. And so in the end, Paula, what was Todd Hodney convicted of? So the jury found Todd Hodney guilty of burglary, rape, and involuntary deviant sexual intercourse. And after the verdict is read, the police escort Betsy Saylor out of the courtroom and she never sees Todd Hodney again. What happened next was uh, a stunner. Moments after the verdict is read, the judge, Richard Sharp, does not remand Hodney into custody, nor does he revoke his bail he instead announces that he will be released to return home with his family while awaiting a pre-sentence investigation. And this shocked people in the courtroom. Like, I found one of the former jurors who remembers being just sort of stunned by this. And of all the other people, the prosecutor, David Grine, someone who, you know, brings these cases before the court on a regular basis says this had never happened to him before. It's never happened to him since. He's like, I don't know why the judge just let him walk after being convicted of of such a violent crime, but he did. And he literally walked out the door, got in his parents' car with his girlfriend and left Center County, Pennsylvania and headed home to Long Island. And so we just discussed a shocking development in the case of Todd Hodney, which is that he is allowed to go home to Long Island instead of straight to prison, despite all of these convictions 
on truly reprehensible, serious crimes. And Tom, like, this is your account now. We're now back at your home. What happens to Todd Hodney from there? So one of the things that I need to sort of stress here is that Todd and I are from the same hometown. We're both from Wontaw, New York. And so Todd comes back to Wontaw. He has no supervision whatsoever. It's not like he's reporting to a parole officer or anything like that. He was unsupervised enough. When he got home, he followed his girlfriend down to Florida. His girlfriend was going to Florida to basically to escape from what just happened, which was that her boyfriend was convicted of these terrible rapes. She went down there to Key West with her girlfriends. They get to the hotel, the phone rings. It's Todd. He's out front. He, you know, basically tries to convince her and her friends that he was not guilty. And in doing so, convinces them that he is guilty. He drives home on his own and then begins a, you know, a crime spree on Long Island. In April, he rapes a woman violently in, in Wontaw. He rapes another woman violently in Oyster Bay and also physically tackles her 79-year-old mother to the extent that the, the mother never really recovers. He attacks a woman who is out jogging one night near her home in Bethpage. He attacks another woman who is going to her car at Roosevelt Field Mall, which is a huge mall in Long Island. He attacks a woman who is using a payphone in Roslyn, Long Island. He attacks and sexually assaults seven women in all between the middle of April 1979 and the last day of May 1979. All of these attacks are marked by their extreme level of violence, cruelty, and just sheer predation. Paula, I feel like I have to ask you a question that I've asked already once on this podcast, which is what ends up putting a stop to Todd Hodney's serial crime wave? A very brave and quick thinking young woman. On May 31st, he barges into the home of where the 16 year old girl lives. He grabs her, holds a knife against her and is trying to overcome her. And she's not having any of it. And, um, She's fighting back. He's shoving things in her mouth. She's pulling them out. She is just screaming. She's like, I, this is not happening. And finally, she's able to, to break free from him. And she runs outside and she runs into the street. And just as luck should have it, her neighbor, who is a New York City cop, is pulling up to his house. And she flags him down and the guy gives chase and is able to catch up to Todd and arrest him. And that's how Todd Hodney finally gets caught in Long Island. 
And we should mention that while Todd Hotney is finally now going to jail after committing all of these horrifying, unspeakable crimes, this is also not the end of his story. No. Uh, sadly, it takes another tragic turn. So he goes to prison for, for three years in Pennsylvania for the rape of Betsy Saylor. And then for the crimes on Long Island, he spends four years in prison in New York. And he is up for parole. Even though the prosecutor who put him away for the rapes in Long Island writes a letter to the parole board saying, like, I strongly oppose the release. I am convinced that he is going to reoffend. Yes. He gets out. And in August of 1987, he ends up murdering cab driver. And for that crime, he finally gets sent to prison for a life sentence. And he ends up having cancer and he dies at the height of the COVID pandemic in April of 2020. Coming up, how the terrible trajectory of Todd Hodney led to a completely unexpected twist for Betsy and Irv. Now let's talk about the play of the week. The pressure to follow up Hypnotic and Cognac weighing heavy on the team. Hypnotic was in the cup, blue, and ready for the play. And boom! Añejo Tequila came in with a smooth assist to Hypnotic's tropical fruit finish. Shaken, strained, poured. It was green and good. The playmaking splash shifted the tempo. Another great cocktail from the Hypnotic team. Every season is Hypnotic and Tequila season. Hypnotic Liqueur, Bardstown, Kentucky. 17% alcohol by volume. Hypnotic reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back because with ebay motors you're burning rubber not cash with all the parts you need at the prices you want it's easy to make your car the mvp and bring home some huge wins keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com eligible items only exclusions apply and so this is where i do need to mention that there is this 30,000 word investigation on ESPN.com right now where this story is told in full and even greater detail. But for our purposes on this podcast, Tom, we do need to go back to Betsy Saylor, who is picking up the pieces of her life while under the protection and the friendship of Irv Pankey, who said to her that she would never be alone again or afraid again in that same way. Did Irv fulfill that promise at Penn State? Yeah, I think that Irv was as good as his word. Really, for the rest of Betsy's senior year, Irv did everything he could to 
make her life normal again. And what happened to the two of them after college? When he finished his time at Penn State, he was not finished with football. He was a second-round draft choice, I believe, for the NFL, for the Los Angeles Rams. And he was a tackle, a left tackle, I believe, in the NFL for 13 years. And he has a life and Betsy has a life. I mean, she gets married as a career, as a human resource officer. And Irv has a career as a left tackle for the Los Angeles Rams. They don't see each other again for decades. And this basic fact, the fact that they do not see each other for years and years and years and years, it, it, I know that it really stuck with both of you guys after doing all of this reporting. When was the last time that Betsy and Irv had seen each other? The last time that they saw each other was, I think, a year after their friendship. They both came back to Penn State for a football game, and I believe that they saw each other at a football game circa 1980, 81, somewhere around there. But then they didn't see each other for 40 plus years. And we knew that this was a remarkable story. We call this story untold. The title refers to the fact that for so many years, the story of Todd Hodney went untold. But because the story of Todd Hodney went untold, a lot of stories went untold, and this was one of them, and it was one of the most remarkable ones. So we decided that we wanted people to hear this, and so we each reached out to, to Betsy and to Irv to see whether they would be willing to get back together, and the answer was an enthusiastic yes. We arranged a reunion of the both of them and a filming of their reunion in State College in September of 2021. You know, to see them at, at this time in their lives, I mean, they're, they are in their 60s. I met Irv as he got there, and he's not only in his 60s, he's a former NFL football player in his 60s, which means that you know, driving four hours in a small rented car is not the easiest thing for him. And so he gets out of the car, you know, slowly and he walks to the door slowly and it's pouring rain and he walks to the door. Betsy answers. She had told him that there were going to be some snickerdoodle cookies awaiting him. And he says, What up there, child? <laughs> How, How are you? Are you? Oh. I'm good. Oh. How are you? Good. Where are my cookies? Good. <laughs> I, they're right there. <laughs> what happened to them? <laughs> and she just immediately, you know, fa like falls against him. I mean, it's just the most... Yeah. I mean, I'm getting chill. I'm getting chills describing it. No, I, it's I, it's hard to summarize the power of that physical reunion. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's just there's so many things to it. It was not just two people who hadn't seen each other in 40 years. It was 
two people and had remarkable chemistry. Yeah. Aww. This is good. This is good. <laughs> you know, Betsy, over the years, had really come to understand the role that this person that she hadn't seen in so long had played in her life and really wanted the chance to let him know the level of her gratitude. And you could see that right from the start. Finally. Mm -hmm. How yes. long has it been since you guys have seen each other? Yeah. 40 years? Yeah. It's been a minute. So she sent me a picture so I know what the hell she looked like. I did, just so you wouldn't confuse me with all the other starlets that surround him. Those scarlets went away years ago. <laughs> so you have this very, very large man in a Hawaiian shirt. And you have, you know, a woman who's the same age with glasses and curly gray hair. And they just fit, if that makes any sense. <laughs> I'm just thinking of the way that Betsy looked at him. And there's just this sense of of arrival, like, yes, I'm where I should be, and he's where he should be. You know, we've been on the phone chit-chatting for a long time. <laughs> well, for about a couple, two or three weeks, so we, we, we've had fun. We've covered some, covered, covered some ground. A little bit. Had to get better. Yeah. Aww. And I was keeping touch. And, and You're you know. so comfortable. They don't just look at each other. They don't just glance at each other. They connect with each other every time they look toward one another. I mean, it's it's you can still see it, the admiration and the the compassion in their eyes. It is just so funny to me how they hadn't talked in all this time and they start talking and it's like no time had elapsed at all. I mean, the ease which, with which they banter and that they sort of chide each other and the whole line about the cookies. I mean, you would you would think that that they had stayed in touch this whole time. What do they do with this rediscovered connection? They fall in love. <laughs> in March of of this year, Betsy sends me a text and she says, uh, a little smiley face, and then she says, sorry for the delay in getting back to you. I have been busy falling in love. <laughs> you know, there were so many times where I would get messages from her, I would talk to her where she just sounded like a schoolgirl. It was so sweet and it was, it was just really adorable. I mean, they both had and lost spouses. So... Mm. It's not like they're waiting around. <laughs> I mean, they are, they are, you know, they kind of moved pretty quickly and they both talked about that. Like, why wait? We have, we have nothing to lose. Let's just, let's just go forward with this. Yeah. I don't really ever get to experience this generally in, in reporting. So it's been no. really refreshing, honestly. Guys, the idea that this specific story became, in the end, a love story in ways that, I, I mean, who, 
I, uh, gee, I, 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 I am in awe that this is where this has landed. Yeah, it, it might. I mean, I've written a lot of very, very dark stories in my journalistic career, and this might, this might, this might be the darkest story I've ever written. And and yet, and yet, what came out of it is this is this thing that kind of takes the wind out of me all the time. The story that we're focusing on right now is the story of Betsy Saylor and Irv Pankey, because there is that grace to it, and there is that light, but. There are a lot of Betsy Sailors out there. There's not a lot of Irvs. And this became a way for us to, to bring that out. That, that became like the other story that we wound up telling right alongside the story of Todd Hodney. I hope that when people see the story and read about Betsy and Irv as well, specifically, that they take away the importance of, you know, what it means to be an Irv. And the very specific part of it in terms of, you know, encouraging young male athletes to see themselves as the solution to preventing campus sexual assault and being advocates for women, but that I hope people realize that, you know, there's a real harm when you don't do that. All of the other women who had to suffer in in silence and who had, you know, who were surrounded by people who didn't acknowledge their pain, who told them, oh, just move on. You know, when you don't have that, you aren't made whole. And you don't have someone to help get you through this. And there is no happy reunion at the end. I hope that this lesson from the 1970s affects some change today because this issue, this is not going away anytime soon. Tom Juneau and Paula Levine, thank you so much for bringing us a truly unforgettable story. You're welcome. It was our pleasure. Thank you for having us on and giving us the chance to tell this story again. You can read Untold, the full story written by Tom Juneau and Paula Levine on ESPN.com. And you can watch the film Betsy and Irv, which is currently available on ESPN+. I'm Pablo Torre. This has been ESPN Daily. And our show is produced by Bradford Craig, Alexander Hyacinth, Mike Johns, Heather Lombardo, Ryan Nantel, Mike Philbrick, Andy Tennant, Chris Tuminello, and Aaron Vale. Special thanks this week to Andre Soto, Jalen Harris, Eric Neal, Nicole Norin, Ty Reeves, and Jackson Agelo. I'll talk to you Monday. <laughs>